When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No one was overly surprised when this 80s flick dominated the 1989 Academy Awards ceremony. It featured one of America's biggest movie stars showing a little gravitas as a self-absorbed hustler who learns the importance of family. It had an Oscar mainstay going deep into affliction, playing a character with a disorder that not many everyday moviegoers knew much about at the time. And at the helm, a respected director whose films had been gaining in prestige and popularity throughout the decade. So grab some cheese balls and apple juice before you crank up the classic Buick Roadmaster convertible as J.B. Huffman and I discuss Rain Man from 1988 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. I got all my money tied up in these cars, and if I don't get my money out, I am over. I am finished. Do you understand that? Charlie Babbitt thought he knew everything. Who is this? Who is this guy? Raymond is your brother. My brother? I don't have a brother. I just thought maybe you'd like to go to Los Angeles with me. Charlie, let's take him home. Come on. This makes no sense. Well, I found out a few days ago that I have a brother and I want to be with him and I'm, I'm supposed to give him up. Dustin Hoffman. Tom Cruise. Rain Man. Rated R. Start Friday. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you on this episode of the podcast. I'm excited about this one, one of my favorite 80s movies uh, that I hadn't really seen in a long time, but we'll get to that. But also the first time for this guest co-host. So happy to have Mr. J.B. Huffman from Manly Movies on the podcast. Say hello, J.B. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. Happy to be here, man. I uh, it's it's eight minutes to Wapner, and it's time to man up. 
There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and for those the first time uh, listeners, maybe haven't heard the ad for Manly Movies, we've been running for a couple months. So tell us a little bit about Manly Movies and what your podcast is all about. Yeah, uh started back in March, and Tim's actually been on there once uh, <laughs> that's been released. Uh, we have a Tombstone episode three. Uh, then we got another one coming up, but it's, it's mainly it's just me and then I, another guest and the guest picks the movie is something that's, you know, near and dear to their hearts. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of take a look at the movie and we look at it through the lens of how it can the lessons that we can take as a man, as a husband, father, you know, really all men in general, um, because movies can really teach us a lot about life. And that's kind of what we're wanting to do. Um, yeah, I've, I've always had a passion for film. Well, mm-hmm. I, I'll say that I've always had a passion for discipleship. My passion <laughs> right. for film has come in recent, more recent years. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, you know, I thought, geez, my, why not mix those two and mm-hmm. help us grow as dads and husbands? And so that's it's kind of what I'm what I'm about. And I, I've really enjoyed it. We've we're only ten episodes into it. I say we. It's all me. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. I do the and, same and, thing. And, and, and guess, but. Um, as much work as I have to do, that's why I want the guests to pick the movie because that way, you know, they can talk a lot more than I have to. So <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. I understand. Trust me. I understand. But yeah, definitely check it out. If you haven't listened to the tombstone episode, even though it's not an eighties movie, it was close. It came out in 93. So, but you know, uh, it's a great episode, great movie. Uh, so glad to have you on the show. We do have an eighties movie coming up with Tim though. Is, we do uh, Tango Tango and Cash. Uh, we oh. have recorded that. I'm not sure when I will release that. <laughs> um, I don't really have a schedule right now, but I'll, right. I'll, I'll get it out there as as, as soon as I can. <laughs> gotcha. Be on the lookout. I think this one could qualify as a manly movie for sure. Rain Man. Uh, what a great movie about two brothers. And of course, if you haven't seen it already, why are you listening to this podcast? Go watch the movie first because we're going to talk all about it. Uh, but let's jump right in. When did you see Rain Man for the very first time? Well, I remember watching it a lot growing up, just mm-hmm. kind of on TV whenever right, right. my parents would put it on because it, it was one of my mom's favorite movies. Okay. And and it's her and my uncle, her brother, they they love the movie. And so, like, I just would watch it with her. I didn't really pay that much attention to it, but I think it was probably about 15 years ago, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit longer than that. I was probably... I was probably in high school, I think, but okay. we went to the lake and my uncle had brought the DVD and we all watched it together. Mm-hmm. And then I think we put it, push play again and watched it again. Like it was just <laughs> like, it was on repeat, like all weekend long, I think. Right. Um, right. And so it's just all those. I remember the quotes from, from the movie that me and my family would always quote to each other. It's, just, uh, it's eight minutes to Wapner and right, stuff like right. that or I'm an excellent driver. That's, that was our favorite thing. <laughs> say that all the time. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. But, I think everybody, I mean, if you've seen the movie, I think everybody's done somewhat of a Dustin Hoffman as Raymond impression of one of the, you know, things that he said, either like the five minutes to Wapner or uh, excellent driveway. Yeah. Or definitely, definitely, uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So one of those, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that I saw this one in the theater. I don't have a specific, like, you know, ingrained in my mind, uh, movie going experience with this one, but I'm pretty sure I saw this one in the theater, but I watched it plenty of times either on cable. I, I recorded the TV version, like when it came on TV, but I'm pretty sure when I had my VHS collection, this was, this one was in there because this one, I remember when this came out, it really impacted me 
maybe because of the acting, maybe because of the story, and we'll, we'll di- you know, dig a little into that as we get going. But it was just a really good movie. And I became a quick Barry Levinson fan, even though I'd already seen Good Morning Vietnam, which had come out before that. But this was also around the time that I was really starting to, you know, getting deep into movies, like really wanting to be a quote unquote movie buff. So this one was, you know, one of the more, dare I say, artistic commercial movies at the time where mm-hmm. it wasn't a blockbuster. It wasn't a, you know, straight up comedy. It really dealt with some serious issues. And so to kind of see it through that lens, I remember really being impacted. And that was in my preteen. So I was pretty young to kind of be getting into that, you know, that kind of movie at that point, I think. So, so when was the last time you saw it before rewatching it for the podcast? Actually, uh, February. <laughs> um, I, I see. I hadn't watched it in probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years or so. I right. think I might've watched it with my wife maybe mm-hmm. 10 years ago, but then I, <laughs> this is funny. I was actually giving blood Okay. And I was doing this, it's called aphoresis and they hook you up for four hours and they take it out of one mm-hmm. arm, put it back in the other arm. But anyway, it's a process, but gotcha. you're there for four, you're there for four hours and they mm-hmm. give you a TV with Netflix and HBO Matt or nice, whatever Netflix and <laughs> whatever, Prime the streaming and service. Think, whatever the streaming services they have. Right. And I remember I watched something. It was, I think I watched like, uh, Oh yeah, that's what it was. It was a Tom Cruise, uh, back to back. I did, um, uh, mission impossible, uh, which I, was my first time to watch that. Oh, and the then first I was like, one? okay, that was, yeah, the first one, that's the first okay. time I ever watched it. And then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked up to this machine. I'm going to watch some comfort food right now. So I went over <laughs> to Netflix and I, and I put it on rain man. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you, man. I'm sitting there with all these other people who are hooked up to these machines. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there crying, you know, like right, I'm this right. 36 year old man with this huge beard and everything. Like, um, <laughs> it's like just sitting there, just stop it. And someone comes up, one of the nurses comes up and says, are you okay, sir? I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> it's just about two brothers and I'm a brother. Right, right, brothers. right, right. Right. <laughs> so, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's, yeah, I could see that being a very interesting experience, but, but <laughs> hey, that, but that's, you know, it's that type of movie. That's what it, that's that, that's what you want to get from it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but yeah, for me, yeah. it's been, it's it been a long time since I'd watched it. And one of those, you know, when people say like, what are your favorite movies from the eighties or your favorite movies of all time? This one was on my list for a long time, but I've seen so many other movies since then. And it's like, it's kind of gotten further down on the list because I just hadn't seen it in a while. So I'd been wanting to watch it for a while, but it really wasn't anywhere that I saw that it was available. And so back in June, beginning of June, I think I, or maybe it was May. It might've been anyway, a couple of months ago <laughs> before summer, it was coming. Like I, I was flipping channels on my cable and, uh, or my whatever, it's not cable anymore, but my TV services or whatever. And I saw that it was coming on. And so I set it to record on the, my DVR. I was like, oh, I'm going to go back and watch it. And so it sat on my DVR for a while because I was like, I want to watch it. But it's one of those movies where like, when I watch this, I want to sit down and watch it. I want to like, you know, because I hadn't seen it so long. I didn't want it to be just on while I was doing something or, you know, I'm working on a project and so I have to put the TV on. I want to really kind of experience it again. And so then in June, I was looking at trying to do something, which I did a few, but I was going to take like my top 20 movies that I had ranked on flick chart 
and go back and rewatch them because a lot of them were ones that I had not seen in a long time and kind of do like a refresher review and think about it. So it was like number 19, I think, on my list, um, just based on how I've been rating stuff. And so I was like, I got to get to it. I got to get to it. And then when I went to my DVR, I had like 48 hours before it was going to be deleted because it only holds for so (laughs) much time. So I'd watched it in June. So then I watched it again today for the podcast. But even when I watched it in June, I mean, it had to have been 20 years maybe since I'd watched it. I mean, it'd been a, it'd been a long, I mean, college was probably the last time I probably watched it, which would have been in the mid nineties. So, or late nineties, not telling my age too much, but anyway, I'm old. doesn't matter. <laughs> and now these messages. Now playing on a cell phone near you, a show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? The TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams, and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life For You. And here at Retro Life For You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro, and we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, Make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. All right, well, you ready to talk about story origin and pre-production? See how this movie came about? I thought it was a pretty interesting story. So in drafting the story for Rain Man, screenwriter Barry Morrow decided to base the Dustin Hoffman character Raymond Babbitt off of his experiences with both Kim Peek and Bill Stachter, two men who had gained notoriety and fame for their intellectual disabilities. Morrow became the legal guardian of his friend, Bill Sachter, to prevent him from being sent back to the institution he lived in for most of his life. Before Rain Man, Morrow told this story in the TV movie called Bill, starring Mickey Rooney as Stactor. And I think I vaguely remember seeing that TV, maybe a commercial for it, but I, uh, it's just, it, it seemed like it stuck out. Uh, Morrow also partly based Ray on Kim Peek, a man he'd met in 1984, who was a mega savant with skills similar to Ray, as well as similar disabilities. Unlike Ray, Peek, who died in 2009 at age 58, was not autistic. However, he did have an incredible memory. By the time he died, Peek had memorized around 12,000 books. He could read two different pages at the same time with one eye on each page. That's crazy. He could also remember the date. I'm sorry. He could remember the day of any date as well as any zip code, map, or travel route 
across the U.S. Peek also had mental disabilities that affected his physical coordination, and he needed help to get dressed and brush his hair and teeth. Plus, he couldn't understand metaphors or do basic reasoning. We can see how Raymond is kind of a culmination of these characters. Mm-hmm. Initially going into the creation of the film, Mara was essentially unaware of the intricacies of the condition known as savant syndrome, as well as autism itself, deciding instead the movie was less about Raymond's intellectual disability and more about the relationship formed between Raymond and Charlie. According to Rolling Stone, Rain Man went through three directors and six writers before finding the dream team of screenwriter Ronald Bass and director Barry Levinson. Barry Morrow is the one who came up with the story and wrote the first script for MGM. The studio eventually handed it to Ronald Bass, who only had three main, sorry, had three minor screenwriting credits to his name, but would later write The Joy Luck Club, Dangerous Minds, and My Best Friend's Wedding. Uh, I thought this was cool. Barry Morrow chose the name of the film by reading through a book of names, deciding which sounded most interesting when mispronounced. He eventually narrowed it down to four names, including Rain Man for Raymond and No Man for Norman. Marrow decided that Rain Man was the best. In order to see if his instinct was correct, he asked his children which of the four they preferred, and they all agreed with his choice. So I thought that was pretty pretty interesting. So, mm-hmm. so we can talk a little bit about the directors that they had considered, which I thought were – these are some pretty big-name directors. So. Mm-hmm. We had Steven Spielberg was considered directing. He began making notes in order to prepare for the project. The reason he backed out was because his friend George Lucas needed him to start work on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So Spielberg left the project and gave his notes to Barry Levinson. Sidney Pollack was the next director to work on the film. He ditched an action sequence in which Charlie saves Raymond from some thugs, but he wasn't keen on the idea of a road movie. Dustin Hoffman insisted that Raymond should be an autistic savant instead of being just quote, quote, mentally disabled. His insistence was largely responsible for director Martin Brest putting the project. So you had Spielberg, you had Pollock, you had Brest. I mean, those are some three heavy hitters, especially mm-hmm. at that point in the eighties, Barry Levinson turned down the movie when it was first offered to him. He made good morning Vietnam in 1987 instead, but after the other directors backed out, he decided to take the job. Looking at the script, Levinson felt there was too much action, which detracted from the heart of the story, the relationship between the brothers. So Levinson and Bass worked together to create a draft that put the focus back on the Babbitts. As Levinson told Rolling Stone, he said, quote unquote, if I can make the relationship work with these two guys on the road, then that's enough for me. Unfortunately, a writer strike meant the script wasn't finished by the time filming started, but Morrow and Bass still won the Best Original Screenplay Oscar for Rain Man when Levinson picked up Best Director. And then also, I kind of skipped over a note that uh, Morrow and Bass never met until they were doing the awards ceremony. So even though they were listed as co-writers, they had, I mean, it wasn't like they sat down and wrote the movie together. Morrow kind of started it, and then Bass came in and did all the final, you know, finishing touches. And there's also, mm-hmm. in some other things I read, Levinson was also, he wrote a lot of scripts. We'll talk about him in just a second. So he was kind of doctoring the script along the way, too, but he didn't take any screenwriting credit for his work. So. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about Barry Levinson. Were you aware of his filmography before seeing this movie? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what I saw first. I think I think I might have saw Bandits. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. That, that was like 2001. Mm-hmm. But I think I probably saw Rain Man either a year, a couple years before that or a couple years after that. Um, but I, I remember seeing those at about the same time. But um, The Natural, I remember you know watching that kind of 
um, in passing growing up. I didn't watch it for for real until that might have been actually the first one that I watched. I okay. was probably I was a teenager, I think. The Natural, and then Good Morning Vietnam. I didn't watch until I was an adult. Okay. And same with Diner, which that's that's a really funny movie. Have you seen Diner? <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time, but yeah, yeah, I saw that. I definitely saw that one after I saw this. I think that was one of those that like it would always pop up in like, you know, great movies that a lot of people didn't see or like cult classics at at that, you know, when I was trying to be more of like a movie buff and getting into more independent movies and less commercial movies. So uh, I did watch it. I don't know if I appreciated it as much at the age I watched it at. I probably need to watch it again, but it was good. Had some, you know, good, good actors in that one. So. Yeah, a lot, a lot of guys got their start there. Mickey Rourke was in that. He, yeah, <laughs> he was completely unrecognizable. <laughs> too. Um, yeah, that's that's for sure. So you mentioned Levinson. Um, I wanted to say the the movie The Survivor is streaming on HBO Max. It's okay. brand new, just came out this year. Mm-hmm. Nobody's talking about it. It's only two thousand people that have actually seen it on Letterboxd, <laughs> and it's so good, man. Like talk about manly movies. It's got mm-hmm. a Ben Foster, who's like a boxer oh, yeah. in the uh, yeah. in the Nazi training uh, camp. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's good. Okay. Anyway, that's that's not about this movie, but you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> just to bring it up. Wanted to just get that plug in there because nobody's seen this movie. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh. So talking a little bit about Barry Levinson. So he uh, first started writing for variety shows such as the Tim Conway Show and the Carol Burnett Show. He found some success as a screenwriter, notably with Mel Brooks comedies. Silent Movie in 1976 and High Anxiety in 1977 and the Oscar nominated script for Injustice for All in 1979. He began his career as a director with Diner in 82, which we talked about, for which he had also written the script and which earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Other iconic films include The Natural, which we discussed in 1984, Young Sherlock Holmes in 85 and Good Morning Vietnam in 87. Those are three good ones. For sure. I didn't realize he was a screenwriter for Tootsie too. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and him and Hoffman had worked. Him like there's a few things I noticed about him. I didn't put in my notes, but like Hoffman, De Niro. He's got some guys that he likes to work with. So you'll see uh-huh. them pop up in a lot of a lot of his movies. So <laughs> Redford, I guess, from The Natural. But yeah. all right, well, let's talk a little bit about casting this movie uh we won't if this doesn't have a very extensive cast which is great because the last couple movies i've done i've had like 16 people to talk about which which (laughs) makes it a little bit long in this section but we only have a few you know this is really raymond and charlie's movie they have a few side characters we'll we'll discuss but interesting enough real life brothers dennis and randy quaid were considered for the roles of raymond and charlie early on i don't really see how i mean they were different back in back then. I mean, I can see it now, but maybe. What do you think? I, I think I had read that they that the that the writer had him in mind, had yeah. those two in mind when he it's was possible. writing it. Yeah, very so, possible. Like, I, I guess I could kind of see it. Um, I could see Randy Quaid being autistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We won't get. In, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just saying I could, I could see. Him yeah. But doing, I, but I doing mean, that, doing that really, or like at least in some kind of mentally disabled, because he yeah. wasn't autistic at first. That was Hoffman's choice. Right. Exactly. So I could see him playing somebody who's mentally yeah. disabled. And, and they're, they are brothers. You can see the similarity mm-hmm. of them, but they're very different personalities as well. I mean, even in real life. So you could see that dynamic kind of working in their favor for that. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. I can go with that. 
Uh, Mel Gibson turned down the part of Ray and Ricky Mork. Ah, Ricky Mork. And <laughs> <laughs> I might leave that just in. Just about so, it. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll say it again. Mel Gibson turned down the part of Ray and Mickey Rourke turned down Charlie. That would have been interesting choices as well. <laughs> A different movie, man. Yeah. Rourke had also previously turned down another part that ultimately went to cruise Maverick and Top Gun. I have mm. no idea how that that was possible. Uh, one interesting combination we never got to see involved Bill Murray playing Ray and Hoffman playing Charlie, but Murray declined the role. Mm. Probably for good reason, I think, in that one. So first off, we're going to talk about Dustin Hoffman as Raymond Ray Babbitt. So a little bit about him and then how he got into character. Hoffman began acting at age 19 after dropping out of music studies at California Santa Monica City College. He then moved to New York City, where he struggled for several years in odd jobs and eventually landed small roles on television and leading roles off-Broadway, where he won an Obie Award. After appearing in the minor comedy The Tiger Makes Out in 1967, Hoffman was cast in his second film, Mike Nichols' The Graduate in 1967, beating out contemporaries Robert Redford and Charles Grodin. He's famous for taking a wide range of difficult roles, such as a crippled street hustler in Midnight Cowboy from 69, an actor pretending to be a woman in Tootsie in 82, and a Captain Pirate and Hook in 1991. So, yeah, Hoffman is uh, known for not really playing one type of character. He's kind of a very good character actor, for sure. Definitely. So I for watching Midnight Cowboy, and that was just a really weird role for him, oh, yeah. I thought. But... That's one that I've never actually watched. I mean, I've seen a bunch of stuff about it. Like, I know that's one of those, like, you know, you're not a real movie fan if you haven't seen it yet. And I, I'll eventually watch it. I just, I just never have. <laughs> it's kind of rough. <laughs> mm. That's why it's not at the top of my list. So. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, one day for a year prior to playing Raymond Babbitt, Hoffman prepared to portray Raymond's autism by seeking out and educating himself on other people with autism, particularly those with savant syndrome. Hoffman had some experience with disabled individuals prior to filming, having worked at the New York Psychiatric Institute when he was younger. The inspiration for the portrayal of Raymond's mannerisms was drawn from a multitude of sources, including Kim Peake and the autistic brother of a Princeton football player with whom Hoffman was in touch with at the time. Part of Hoffman's research into the role also included in-person meetings with savant Kim Peake, wherein he would observe and mimic Peake's actions in order to attempt to give an accurate portrayal at what an individual with savant syndrome might act like. His mimicry of peak savant syndrome was deemed a poor fit for the character by Hoffman, resulting in Hoffman deciding to make Babbitt not only a man with savant syndrome, but also a man with autism. This decision was one that proved to only further the misunderstanding of autism spectrum disorder among the general public. Though autism is in itself a varying condition with numerous ways in which it is characterized, having both autism and savant syndrome is an incredibly rare occurrence. Even so, audiences are swayed into thinking that most autistic individuals were intellectually capable of savant abilities, largely by Hoffman's portrayal of Raymond Babbitt. So I remember when this movie came out, the whole thing about autism that people didn't had no idea what that word meant. So I don't even know how old you were when this movie came out. If you would have any recollection of that at all, probably not. I was four. Yeah. So, so no, <laughs> <laughs> So, but I remember that being like, it, it almost became a, a buzzword at, at that time because people didn't know what that was. You know, I won't use the word that most people called 
that personality uh, at the time, but that was just what that everybody got lumped into this one, you know, uh, group of what they didn't, people didn't understand. So it's interesting now to think, to read this and think, you know, of course we know more about it now, but like there are multiple forms of autism. And we talk about now people on the spectrum because there's a wide spectrum of what autism is. And then the whole thing about savant syndrome being something totally different. I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't, I didn't really know there was a difference until kind of doing the research on it because this being the first exposure to autism, especially at a young age, you kind of think, Oh, that's, that's all this, you know, they're all is all the same. Like that's what an autistic person is like. So I thought it was interesting to think kind of about that. And we'll, I'll have a little bit more. I'll talk about it as we talk about what autism is and isn't as we get a little bit further down, down the line. But I mean, I didn't know there was a difference either. Um, I think I just kind of assumed that, you know, people with autism could also, you know, be very good at like supremely expert at certain things. Mm -hmm. And I know, and I know that they do like, especially with Asperger's, I know know Mm -hmm. that they tend to latch on to something like, you know, it might be baseball and Mm -hmm. they might know, you know, every single stat from one baseball team that's ever been recorded. Right. Um, right. And I actually know somebody who's, or have known somebody who I can't remember what her thing was, but it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't baseball, but you know, it's just, something that she was able to focus on and just was able to retain that information. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very interesting. So, all right, well, let's move on to Tom Cruise as Charles, Charlie Babbitt. Uh, We've talked about Cruise on a couple other episodes. We've covered him before, but just a little brief recap. Cruise who took up acting in high school, made his film debut in endless love in 81. He had supporting roles in such movies as taps in 81 and the outsiders in 83 before starring as a high school senior who turns his parents home into a brothel and risky business in 83. The movie was a major success earning Cruz widespread recognition. His star status was cemented with top gun in 86, which we covered already the highest grossing film of that year in which he played a Navy jet pilot in 86 Cruz appeared opposite Paul Newman in the color of money, which was directed by Martin Scorsese. For his portrayal of a Vietnam War veteran turned activist and born on the 4th of July in 89, Cruz received his first Academy Award nomination. I just watched The Color of Money a couple of months ago, which was had been on my watch list for a while. It was really good. Much better than I, I still have, expected. Still haven't I seen still it? haven't gotten around to doing it. Cause I've seen The Hustler. Okay, yeah. And it's, it's the same character, right? Yeah, uh, Paul Newman's playing the same character, yeah. I'm a big fan of the Mission Impossible franchise. I've, I remember seeing the first one in the theater. That's one of those in theater experiences that I remember. Wasn't as happy with the second one, which most people weren't. But like once it kind of got back on its feet from three on, I've been a big fan of that. But I miss the Tom Cruise of the late 80s through the 90s because at that time mm-hmm. of his career, he was really, he wanted to work with the best directors and the best writers and challenging characters and doing something kind of different he was really becoming an actor not just which now he's kind of become more of an action star than an actor and so just kind of going through his filmography looking at you know uh, one of my other favorite movies of his is a few good men um Mm. that he did with uh, rob reiner one of my all-time favorites and then jerry Maguire's a big i'm a big fan of that one too so yeah that's my favorite right there man (laughs) i love jerry Maguire so much so it's like i miss like so watching this again was like man I miss the Tom Cruise that was really trying to become an act, you know, really striving to become the best actor, you know? I mean, you know, I think, I think at some point he was just kind of chasing, he was more chasing for the Oscar 
more so than yeah. he was, you know, taking roles he really should have taken. But anyway, that's a whole other episode or whole other podcast, probably, as we get in the 90s. Tom Cruise was cast early on in Rain Man's long pre-production lifespan, but he was seen as an odd choice for a dramatic role in which the emotional arc rested largely on his shoulders. As Barry Levinson explained to the New York Times, Ray doesn't change because he's most comfortable with routine. Charlie is the one who goes on an emotional as well as literal journey from self-centered wheeler dealer to a caretaker who tries his best to understand Ray. Up until Rain Man, Cruz had been seen as a good-looking action or romantic lead. His three biggest movies had been Cocktail, in which he played a rebellious cocktail bar owner, Risky Business, where he played a rebellious teenager, and Top Gun, in which he played the Maverick. None of the roles had an abundance of emotional depth. Cruz agreed that Charlie was, quote-unquote, a challenge, but that was the appeal. He told the AP, or Associated Press, it was different. It was the best role I've had in my career to date. And his co-star was confident in him. Kaufman and Cruz improvised with each other, including playing each other's characters, and Hoffman said of Cruz to the New York Times, quote, we were linked into each other, which allowed us to be rough with each other. There's an emotionality between us that's very different, sorry, that's very difficult to act that permitted moments to happen between us. I think that comes through in the movie. Yeah, and interesting. I actually, this this time when I watched it, I watched it with uh, Barry Levinson's commentary. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, and he was talking about how Tom Cruise, he doesn't get a whole lot of credit for Mm -hmm. his performance. Everyone talks about Hoffman. Right. But Cruise had to push every scene himself. Yeah, because Hoffman was just going to react off of him mm-hmm. and he was going to do it without ever making eye contact. Right. So right. It just took a lot of effort on on Tom's part. Yeah. And but I can't think of an actor who could who puts more work into his acting than Tom Cruise. So yeah. he was made for this job, really. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I was shocked because I I didn't put it in because I had so much other stuff to cover. But if you go online and you can Google, but like all the nominations awards for this movie. Tom Cruise is only nominated for one award and like not, not even in the Oscars, but like it was some Kansas film critics award or whatever, you know, nothing against Kansas, but it just, you know, it wasn't wasn't one of the big, you know, it wasn't one of the, it wasn't the golden globes. It wasn't, you know, the Oscars, it wasn't the uh, critics choice, whatever. But, but you really think about watching, watching it today. I was like, Charlie is the one with the, with the story arc. He he's the one that's making that journey from, like I said, the mm-hmm. self-absorbed Wheeler dealer to I really care about my brother. I mean, it's all in that last you know dialogue he has with the psychiatrist. Like you know, when when this whole journey started, he was just my brother by name, but now we've we we've had this connection, and it's like he's the one that you see really change and develop over the course of the movie. Where Hoffman is just he's mm-hmm. he's Raymond. I mean. The, his his character is not to change. I mean, that's the whole point of yeah. his character is to be this it, 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 that just to be that character. So, so mm-hmm. I was a little. I thought that was interesting that he didn't get, like you said, he didn't get the appreciation for the the real acting he had to do in this movie for sure. Right. Uh, speaking of that, so Sir Michael Caine has revealed that Tom Cruise's performance in Rain Man was one of his personal favorites of all he'd ever seen on film. Caine found out somewhat late in his adult life that he had a brother he'd never been told about who had lived most of his life in Cane Hill Mental Hospital with a debilitating diagnosis of epilepsy. With great sincerity, he said, quote, Tom's performance was beautifully done, end quote. He went on to say that Dustin had the showy part. Tom's required great discipline and a responsibility to draw the viewer into Raymond's point of view 
as well as portray the painful acceptance of the limitations his brother's condition placed on their level of familial intimacy. Mm -hmm. Couldn't have said it better myself, which is why I let him say it. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Moving right along. Valerie Golino. I hope I'm saying her name correctly as Susanna. Uh, Galino never formally studied acting, but found success in Italian films before moving to Los Angeles to work in Hollywood with the movie Big Top Pee Wee in 1988. What a way to break into uh, American film. Uh, First one I saw of her. Yeah. So uh, she did Rain Man the same year. After Rain Man, she was cast in the comedy films Hot Shots in 91 and Hot Shots Part Deux in 1993 (laughs) as the girlfriend of the hero played by Charlie Sheen, which is funny because Charlie Sheen was parroting top gun which is tom cruise's movie so she had mm-hmm. to work with both of them i wonder if that's why she got the role but anyway even though she was known <laughs> as a dramatic actress in italy most of the offers she received in hollywood for comedies i thought she was good i mean i thought she held her own really well with Cruise because they had some rough scenes where i mean it was pretty volatile relationship they had you know was, mm-hmm. as you could tell at the beginning it was very one-sided Cruise really i won't say he didn't care for her he just didn't know how to appreciate her maybe it's a good way to put it yeah but yeah like one of the scenes i don't know i got in the scenes but like one of the scenes where she you know he's telling the story when they're at the house when they first get there and he's you know finding stuff in the house and she's like well, we've been we've known each other for a year we've been dating for a year you've never told me the story which that little piece of exposition tells you everything you need to know about the relationship is that mm-hmm. he's not trying to be too close to her even though you can tell she's very much wanting to have a long long-term relationship with him so which then gives some gravitas later when he calls her and is like i thought it might be over but i don't want it to be over where he's kind of finally being vulnerable with her to say look i need you in my life so anyway we're digging deep you had me at hello (laughs) (laughs) different cruise movie yes all right i i I picked up on the reference though so (laughs) so her character's nationality in rain man was changed from american to italian american to accommodate her accent which was smart. So, uh, so that's yeah. it for like the main roles. Uh, I have two that I wanted to bring, bring up, which I thought were, were worth mentioning. So Bonnie hunt as Sally Dibbs, who was the waitress at the diner, which when I watched this, uh, like back in June, I was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize Bonnie Hutt when he was a real small role. This was her film mm-hmm. debut, but of course she worked with Cruz again and Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire in 96. We both talked about. So, um, mm-hmm. Bonnie hunts fantastic. She's one of those, one of those actresses that doesn't get a lot of appreciation. She's been in a ton of stuff, always in a supporting role, but she's always great. So, and then uh, I think I knew this when I watched it, but of course, Barry Levinson, the director plays the psychiatrist at the end. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I didn't know this until today that JT Walsh, the great JT Walsh was originally supposed to play the psychiatrist at the end of the movie. When he wasn't available, Barry Levinson filled in after Dustin Hoffman suggested it. Levinson said, if he didn't like the way it looked, he would have someone else film it. He ad-libbed repeatedly to quote-unquote push Tom Cruise's buttons, which I thought was fantastic because mm-hmm. it was funny watching that scene today knowing that that's the director and I'm watching it, even though I'm watching it as the movie, but there's a little part of was like, I'm wondering how much of him is in that chair as the director and how much it is being the actor and just how mm-hmm. what he's looking at and how he's reacting. But there's that, there's that part where you can tell Cruise is getting irritated or you know, Charlie's getting <laughs> irritated and I'm like, man, I wonder, and that's before I did the notes. It's like, man, I wonder if that's, if Levinson's kind of doing that to kind of egg him on. Like, I wonder how much they rehearsed that. Cause Cruz is known for being like, he wants to rehearse a lot. Like yeah. he's, he wants to be very well prepared. So I thought it was really cool to see that 
that uh, Levinson was like, and they filmed this movie in sequence, which I thought was really mm-hmm. cool. Like they didn't, you know, so that was some of the last things that they filmed. So him and Levinson and, and Cruz had been through a lot at that point. So he probably had that comfortability. You know, I can, you know, I can make him a little bit more now because we're about to be done. So to really get mm-hmm. pull more out of him. So, which I thought was fantastic. So anybody else in the cast that you want to mention or any, anything I might've missed? Unless you want to talk about the only dancing uh, hooker in uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She didn't have much on the IMDB for me to pull up. But yeah. So yeah, that was a funny kidding. scene. So, well, I will ask you this. So, you know, we talk about Hoffman, we talk about, Cruise, I mean, these two big, big stars. So do you have a favorite film from either either actor that you want to... doesn't have to be an Ooh. 80s movie, just you have a favorite? Well, my favorite film for Cruise is Jerry Maguire. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one... I mean, Top Gun and Jerry Maguire are both, you know, kind of 1A and 1B. And it just mm-hmm. kind of depends on the last one I w- I've seen. I guess Top Gun was... <laughs> I guess Top Gun was the last one I watched because I watched it right before Maverick came out. Right, right. Um, but those two are pretty, pretty well neck and neck. As far as Hoffman goes, man, I like a lot of his supporting roles. Like, like Chef is one of my favorite movies. Oh, um, yeah, that's a good one. And I mean, he's a, a supporting actor in that. Uh, oh, All the President's Men. That's yeah, yeah. That's top notch uh, Hoffman for me. And then recently, I watched Kramer versus Kramer, and man. That movie broke me. Oh yeah, I haven't. That's Goodness. one I haven't seen either. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's good. But he he yeah. won uh he won the best actor for that one too. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was yeah, one. Those I are probably seeing, yeah. some of my favorites there. Yeah, Kramer and Kramer is one of those movies that I remember seeing the commercial for a lot as a kid, but because it, you know, very adult subject matter, so it wasn't something I was like, oh, let me, I want to watch this movie about you know, parents getting divorced and their kids and I didn't, didn't, didn't appeal to me. So, but yeah, but I've heard great things about it. So definitely, definitely need to watch it. But yeah, Jerry Maguire is, you know, up there for me with Cruz. Like I said, I think for me, a few good men and Jerry Maguire kind of, they kind of flip flop for me. Cruz has had some good movies. Hoffman. I haven't seen as many of his movies. So, but I'm kind of like you. It's like, I know him more from his supporting roles and movies more so than like as a lead. So I'm asking you a question. I did not research myself. So I'm going off the top of my head, (laughs) but, and this is bad, but it's kind of the first two movies that pop in my head when I think of Dustin Hoffman is meet the Fockers. Cause that's so funny. Uh, That's one of my, my (laughs) wife, one of her favorites. Uh, She liked, we like that series. And then uh, runaway jury with him and Gene Hackman Mm. and uh, John Cusack. John Cusack. I'm when I'm a, I'm a sucker for courtroom dramas, so you see why I got a few good men and Runaway Jury. I'm a sucker for anything attached to John Grisham. So. Oh yeah, that's just yes, right, yeah. Grisham. So yeah, and mm-hmm. then I didn't realize that uh, Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman were roommates, or they they mm-hmm. met in acting school, and so they have they've been friends for a long time. So that was uh, and just you know, fun fact for Runaway Jury. I know it's not an 80s movie, but it's I just watched it a, a couple months ago because that's one of my favorites. And the scene of Hackman and Hoffman in the bathroom was not in the original script, but they had to mm. have a scene with them facing off against each other uh, for the movie. You can't have those two actors in a movie together and not have them share a scene together. So they, yeah. that scene is not in the book huh. just for the film. So. That's cool. And now these messages. 
What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Hell, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture-themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. All right, well, let's talk about iconic scenes. So when you when somebody says Rain Man, what's the first scene that pops in your mind? Going down the escalator with the suits with no ties. Exactly. The, Started the trend. In Vegas. Started yeah, that trend. That That's the, the iconic scene that I always picture when I think of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I think you'd mentioned the, the, the beginning when they're walking, the, the actual, what shows up on the DVDs and the, and the Blu-rays yeah. or whatever oh, yeah, yeah. Is, is them walking from the, uh, what, what's the name of that place? Yeah. Institution. Yeah. Yeah. Walbrook. Pretty iconic. But I always, I always picture the Vegas scene because yeah. that's just, and, and it's cool because like I've got brothers and like I just, I'm watching this and I'm just like, I can imagine me and my brother going into Vegas all decked out in suits and getting ready <laughs> to be like, all right, we're about to, we're about to wreck shop on this place. And, and you <laughs> right. can see that look, right. you can see that look in Tom Cruise's eyes. Oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. Like I'm about to do, we're about to do this, man. So like, it's just, <laughs> it's just a cool, cool, cool moment, man. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. That, those are my two that I had down, like the walking down the long drive. Like I said, I think because it's the movie poster, it's hard to not think of that. When you see that scene in the movie, it's like it automatically jumps out like, Ooh, you know, this is the movie poster. And then the, uh, the escalator in Vegas, which has been parodied a couple or spoofed a couple of times or homaged. I think the one that popped in my head was from, I think it's hangover, the hangover, the first yeah, one where the they, yep. they got them dressed up, which is funny. But anyway, 
What what about favorite scenes or scenes oh, that 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 got gotcha? you? <laughs> so many of them, man. Yeah. Uh, I think the first one that just kind of really hit me was the hot water burn baby scene. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. And Levinson was talking about that was the first big break in connecting with the brothers. Um, and then, and he, and he, he noticed, he points this out and I didn't realize it, but the, the window and the door were both open when they sat down on their bed and, and he was trying to comfort Ray after, after that. And like, it was just kind of showing that they're still on the road and they're, they're, these two brothers are going to make a connection at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, as they travel through America, but mm-hmm. that one hit that one hit me because that's when we he first realized that he was the Rain Man that yeah. they used to sing yeah. to him, and that he was um that that that's why he had to go because mm-hmm. you know, when the water got too hot for the baby and the baby cried, which was uh Charlie, mm-hmm. and but that his parents thought that Raymond was was the one who hurt him, mm-hmm. and and Raymond's in there saying. Uh, Raymond never hurt Charlie Babbitt. Raymond never mm-hmm. hurt Charlie. I'm just like, man, it's just like it just yeah. it breaks me. Yeah, it's a powerful uh, scene for sure. Yeah, and then the the dancing scene I thought was really cool too. Yeah, um, just, yeah, that's a good scene. It's weird two grown men dancing together, but it's like <laughs> they, it's like they they're brothers obviously yeah but they haven't they haven't spent their entire lives together like mm-hmm. it's not like me and me and my brother dance these are two men that just that just met yeah and so and, and one of them doesn't like to touch other people anyway yeah so it's really awkward but i don't know it's just really touching that they're doing this and he's teaching them how to dance because he wants to learn yeah and then he says and we're all feeling a little silly <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah. And then it's interesting too, because like you think about that scene where it's the younger brother teaching the older brother how to dance. So, and I, I was looking for deleted scenes and they, there was something on YouTube that had a deleted scene, which I didn't put in my notes, but there's a deleted scene where when they get to the town and Charlie's making the phone call and you see in the background that Raymond gets out of the car and the next thing it shows him in the uh, going through the traffic stop with the don't walk. Uh, and walk sign mm. but there was a scene before that where we actually see him going into the store where he buys the where you see you see him later with the the uh, cheese balls and his juice and he's walking so actually there's a scene where he goes into the store and he's looking for the food but he doesn't know he's got to buy the food and so there's a guy working the counter mm. and another guy and so he makes a big mess he went he goes to grab there's like a stack of uh, cookies in uh, contain like plastic containers and he grabs one of the containers. He tries to open and all the cookies fell out. He's like, oh, oh, V-E-R-N. Like he does when he uh, <laughs> knocked over the lamp earlier. And uh, so that's, when, of course, when Charlie comes in because the the guy at the store is about to, you know, he's like, hey, man, you can't come in here and be tearing up my shop, whatever. And so Charlie comes in and he's like, how much, you know, I can pay for it, no problem. But as he's paying the man, then Raymond's out the door again where it, where it cuts the next scene where he's walking across. Anyway. All that to say, there's that deleted scene, but then they were talking with uh, Levinson and uh, uh, Hoff- Hoffman and Cruz, and Cruz is talking about working with Barry Levinson. He's like, Levinson is a very ironic writer. Like he likes to find the irony in certain things. He said that was I saw that in the in the film. So thinking about that irony is that scene you're just talking about with them dancing, where it's like, here's the younger brother teaching the older brother how to dance, and it's like, well, it should be that you think, well, it should be the other way around, but that's just, you know, it's almost another level of the beauty of that moment of the younger brother teaching the older brother. Um, but they're both teaching each other. Anyway, 
So yeah, we're getting real deep and philosophical. Um, philosophical. Oh this, yeah, this, this episode. So it's 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 a deep and philosophical movie, it is. man. Like it really is. I, I think my favorite scene though was when Tom Cruise or Charlie is talking to the doctor. Oh, what's his name? <laughs> Doctor uh, Brunner. Brunner, yeah. The, it's like, it's like yeah. I could remember. And so, and, and he's the guy just tries to pay him off just to kind mm-hmm. of keep him quiet. He, oh, he yeah, offers yeah. him two hundred fifty thousand dollars just just to select Raymond go and and drop this, and 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 he says it's not about the money anymore. Mm-hmm. That's my yeah. brother. I've I've made a connection with him, and. I mean, I feel close to him and I, and I want to have him in my life. And then he asked the same question that he ha- asked, you know, at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. He said, I just don't understand why my dad didn't mm-hmm. tell me that I had a brother. Why, right. why didn't you tell me I had a brother? Why didn't anyone tell me mm-hmm. I had a brother? And right. you can kind of see it in his face, like just kind of, he's about to start tearing up and and, and he's, really really emotional about it and he says because i i would have liked to or it would have been nice to have known him for longer than just you know the last six days yeah and yeah that that scene just really hits me because like yeah. i can definitely understand where he's coming from mm-hmm. like man to go my entire life in, in my 30s and not knowing that i had a brother mm-hmm. man yeah what a childhood yeah that's the culmination of the whole movie right there though i mean that's a great scene for you to bring up because that really is that is the crux of the movie is like you know at the beginning it was like it's about the money i need you know and i would say for good reason but you know they set up the story well the screenwriters do because he needs this money it's not like he's just like oh i'm he's not successful he's not you know necessarily being greedy in a sense but like i've got these i'm i've never dealt with lamborghinis before i'm dealing with this guy there's all these issues i've got people that have you know are uh, asking for their money back. So, you know, this, this, uh, $350,000 or I'm sorry, uh, $3 million. Was that what it was? 3 million, I think 3 million. Yeah. yeah, $3 million is going to help out. So now it's not about the money. Now it's about, you know, I, I really wish someone had told me I had a brother and that's once again, that shows his character arc where he makes that journey from it's about the money to no, I want, I would like to have more memories of this, like this with my brother instead of, you know, what it turned out to be. So mm-hmm. I think you covered most of mine that I had as far as like favorite scenes. The other two I'll try to throw out is uh, I love the introduction of Raymond when she's in the car and he comes up and he starts talking about, is my father's car? I know it's my boyfriend's car, you know? And so just how he was introduced, I thought was really, really smart. And then my other favorite, just because it's fun is when they're trying to get into the lady's house to watch Wapner <laughs> And he's like, you know, I'm from the Nielsen, you know, great scene for Cruz to be like the, you know, the swarmy, not swarmy, but, you know, the smooth talking, you know, I can, I can talk my way in or out of anything, you know, kind of moment. And then of course, Raymond ruins it. Uh Oh, uh oh, dun, 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 he's doing the music, whatever. And she's like, what's really going on? So that was, that was fantastic. And then one little cool fact was that uh, there was only supposed to be two kids in that scene. But the actress that played that role mentioned that she had six kids, so that all of her kids come to was like, oh, let's put all six kids in the scene, and <laughs> uh, and did it that way, which I thought was even better. So, let's hit a few trivia things we don't cover. You can check out on the in the show notes, and then we'll start wrapping this thing up. So, the film was released in '88. However, the song "Ico Ico" by the Bell Stars, featured in the opening credits, was released five years before the film hit theaters. 
by the time the song became popular due to the success of the film and its popular music video, the Bell Stars had already disbanded two years before the film's release. So they didn't, they didn't get to enjoy that popularity of the Ico Ico song. So uh, um, I love this. The elderly man in the waiting room, another one of my favorite scenes, who talks on and on about the Pony Express is named Byron P. Kavnar, an 89-year-old local who was in the waiting room when the crew arrived to film there. He got to talking on his favorite subject, the Pony Express, and director Barry Levinson got such a kick out of it, he let Canvar keep on talking as the cameras rolled. All of his dialogue was spontaneous and not scripted, which is mm. I, which is fantastic. I love that. I gotta, I'm going to tell this. This is so funny. So Rain Man may be the only best picture winner to have a fart joke, but Tom Cruise wasn't <laughs> laughing. When I, This is one of my favorite scenes. Too. When Ray and Charlie are crammed in the phone booth in remote Oklahoma, Ray lets one rip, according to... Accompanied by the phrase, uh-oh, fart. Uh-oh, fart. <laughs> Still on the phone, Charlie asks in disbelief, did you fart, Ray? How can you stand that? <laughs> he then tries to crack the door open, but as with many of the lines that made the final cut, that moment wasn't in the script. Cruz told the Graham Norton show that Hoffman really farted in the tiny phone booth and that he was grossed out by his co-star. Cruz stayed in character enough to call Hoffman by his respective character's name, but he was really trying to open the door. Cruz said, I tried to get out of the booth and everything I said to him was real. <laughs> For his part, Hoffman has no regrets. He said the scene is one of his favorites from the movie, telling interviewer Rajiv Massand that Levinson encouraged them to improvise. So when Cruz went with the gaffe, Hoffman kept the scene going. He said, quote, and it's one of the high moments in my life. I've done Shakespeare and I've done plays by Arthur Miller, but nothing can touch the fart scene. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I had to. I had to, had to add that one in. It was too good. Too good. So real quick, before we wrap up, autism, fact versus films. So I told said we was going to mention this. Uh, one thing autism advocates tend to agree on is that before Rain Man, the vast majority of non-autistic people had no idea what autism was and didn't care, as I mentioned before. The movie addresses this by showing people's confusion when meeting Ray. Rain Man's success not only made movie moviegoers aware of autism, it also led to an increase in funding for medical research. Ray helped audiences put a face to a vague medical term in a way that often needs to happen for people to take an interest in something they have no personal experience with. However, Rain Man's popularity became a double-edged sword. As Professor Kathleen Loveland wrote on ABC, it's very important to recognize that people with autism are not all alike. In fact, they can vary widely across a spectrum of disorder. Only approximately one in 10 people with autism have seven savant-style skills like Ray, but the success of the movie means that many non-autistic people immediately assume that anyone who they meet who's autistic must also be a genius. In addition, as the AV Club pointed out, Charlie only warms to Ray when he realizes he has superior mathematical talents that he can use to his advantage. Rain Man helped raise awareness of a very narrow version of autism, but there are so many other stories to tell. So just for those that have someone that they know that has autism, someone on the spectrum, as much as we love this movie, we're also acknowledging that we understand, especially now, that Ray is not the norm or what all autism is. And so even though it was great that it it was groundbreaking the way that it it exposed that term and that disorder to a broader audience, we've also still got to be smart enough to know that it's not as cut and dry as what you see in the film either. So, mm -hmm. All right. Box office and critical reception. Rain Man debuted on December 16th, 1988, and was the second highest grossing film at the weekend box office behind Twins, 
<laughs> with $7 million. <laughs> it reached the first spot on December on the December 30th to January 2nd weekend, finishing 1988 with $42 million. The film would end up as the highest grossing U.S. film of 1988 by earning over $172 million. That's a lot of money. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 89% on the tomato meter with a 90% audience score. IMDb, 8 out of 10 with viewers and a 65 on Metacritic. I understand how Metacritic can just be so doggone wrong every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's way up there for me. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's you know, it's in my top 20. So it's definitely in the 90s uh, for me. It's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Anything else for to sure. add? Oh, man, I think we just about covered it. That that walk and don't walk scene that's a that's another iconic. You, yeah, you mentioned yeah. it earlier, but yeah. yeah, like that's I always think of that whenever I yeah just think of the movie is yeah. is him getting stopped and he said oh mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then I and yeah and then I love when they're at the in the casino and Cruz like I'm gonna go to the bathroom he's like don't go anywhere Ray until I get back the sign says don't walk which I thought was a great <laughs> little callback. Yes. But it's, you know, that's smart. As a caregiver, you're like, let me, you know, put it in a term that he's going to understand. So I thought that was great. One other thing that was really funny um, was when Ray didn't want to go out in the rain and, and yeah, Carly was like, yeah. you take a shower, right? Well, going out in the rain is just like taking a shower. You just get wet. And Ray's mm. like, of course, the shower's in the bathroom. Right. You're right. <laughs> Charlie's, Charlie pauses and is like, well, that's the end of that conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. There's so many great scenes. It's such a great movie. Man, it was, it was good. Definitely one that I want to definitely, definitely, definitely one that I want to go back and watch. <laughs> definitely one you got to revisit a, a yeah. few more times. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Well, JB, we're going to wrap this one up, but thank you so much for being a part of this episode. Uh, I know we'll do some more episodes in the future, but it was a blast having you on here for the first time. So thank you so much, my friend. Yeah, man. Thanks for inviting me. It's, it's, it's good to join you for one of my family's favorite movies of all time. So. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, before we leave, remember to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Got the forgotten 80s flicks still rolling strong. You can support the podcast. Uh, there's three tiers of giving, 99 cent, 4.99, or nine or 9.99 per month. You can find the link in the show notes. Uh, we've got the Amazon wish list and the 80s flick flashback movie songs mix on Apple Music. I don't have time to get into all that, but just know it's out there. But Ico Ico is one of the songs on the playlist, so go check it out. So that's it for us, for me. Thanks for listening. This is Tim Williams for the 80s flick flashback podcast. Good night, good people. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.